Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Luke Haskell Apologetic Show on the Four Persons Network. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, make way for the hammer of heretics himself. Luke Haskell. wildfires in Canada, or at least that's what they tell me. So anyway, uh, we're going to get right into this. Uh, we got an interesting show tonight, but um, before we get into baptism and the deception of the born again movement, I know you wanted to kind of review some of the things we went over from the uh, previous four shows. So why don't you take it away? Yeah, General, the, the reason I, uh, I, I see a need to do this is, like we talked about before, it's, you know, Catholics and Protestants are speaking a different language. Uh, Catholics uh, basically speak a language from a first century Jewish convert, how that convert saw, you know, uh, the world, the first century and the coming of Christ and, and, the, uh, and the, the church that was put in place. And the Protestants, which came 1,500 years later, they had to develop a different construct in order to separate from the church. And so they speak through this construct. And Catholics speak through more of a covenant theology. We take everything in in, uh, in an image of a covenant, while the Protestants don't even know it, but they're taking in individual scripture verses. And in their minds, they have the interpretations of these verses uh, specifically for the purpose of separation from the church. And mm-hmm. every single one of them is wrong And, uh, and when, when you look at the bigger picture. So we, there's so much clarification to do and so many layers on top of layers to really get the, you know, a, a, an image because there's so much we have to defend against uh, our faith. And so what I want to review just a little bit is we talked about faith, works, and grace, and the understanding that Catholics have compared to what Protestants have. Uh, and uh, since we went over what Protestants have, I, I just want to, before we move in into this, I want to just uh, create an image a little bit more uh, of faith, works, and grace according to how Catholics see this. When we look at faith, the apostles were Jews, who never understood belief outside of a covenant relationship with God. So Paul uses words like obedience to faith. Why? Because we're in the new covenant. What is the new covenant? 
Well, it's it's not just faith alone. It is a process of returning to the garden spiritually. Jesus put in place everything we needed to spiritually return to the garden. And so all of our sacraments, they're not works. They're grace given freely. The prophecy fulfilled the law written on our hearts as opposed to Mosaic law for Jews only, a rule, fear, and temporal punishment is grace given freely. Uh, just the uh, ability to look at the Eucharist and believe in it is grace given freely. And when it came to works, you know, uh, like I said, the, the, the Protestants believe that, you know, sacraments are works and they think this is a works-based salvation because they misunderstand the word works in how Paul addresses it. And, uh, you know, they should have listened to Peter when he says Paul's letters and uh, can lead to destruction of the unlearned and unwise. Because evidently, even then, people were having problems with Paul's letters. You know, Paul was, you know, a Pharisee. He uh, was trained under Gamaliel, the, you know, the Pharisee of Pharisees. And he speaks like a Jewish lawyer. So he speaks in the, the language of the Torah and of works according to how they understood those. Well, they're not talking about, when Paul talks about works, he's mostly talking about the, the works of the baptized Pharisees because these baptized Pharisees were trying to force Mosaic law the ritual law and circumcision of the Gentiles in the church, and they believed that they were, you know, closer to God than the Gentiles in the church were because they kept the law of works. So when Paul says, uh, you know, we're saved by faith, not works of the law, Protestants look at this word works, and they go, oh, well, Catholics have, a, you know, this, this huge uh, uh, works-based salvation. No, we have a transforming grace-based salvation in the sacramental life, and the, and the sacraments are grace given freely. So if, if you look at this, and when Protestants uh, start using uh, Ephesians 2 to try and show that the Catholics are wrong when it mm-hmm. comes to grace, faith, and works, it's actually they're, they're limiting their capacity to, to understand these letters this tradition of false exegesis. Now, in Ephesians 2, Paul starts out by saying, for by grace you are saved. Well, prophecy fulfilled is grace given freely, the law written on our hearts. All the sacraments are grace given freely. Can I interrupt you for just one second? Yeah, you can. Go ahead. Interrupt you for just one second because we've got a phone call and I know who this is. Hi, Terry. How you doing? Hey, brother, you know, I've been moving around and, and uh, working so yes. much, I don't get to call in for all of the shows. And yes. so when you texted me that y'all was on tonight, I wanted to just call in and listen. I'll talk to you afterwards. All right. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I'll give you a call afterwards, but uh, I just wanted right. to acknowledge the call. All right. I'll leave you on listen. so you can listen. All right? Yes, sir. All right. Please continue, <laughs> Luke. Okay, so in Ephesians 2, Paul uh, says that we are saved through faith, are saved through grace, uh, uh, through faith, 
And if we look at the whole, you know, image of the church, living the faith, beginning with the grace given freely of baptism into the church, which is redemption from original sin, therefore it's a saving faith, and we get a better understanding of what Paul's talking about. So all of the things I described as grace given freely are what's in the minds of the entire early church who he's writing to. He's writing specifically to those who have already been baptized into the church who are all already living the sacramental life. So we're saved by grace through faith. Well, we discuss faith, faith as obedience to the faith. And to reiterate, the apostles never saw belief outside of a covenant relationship. So this is part of our salvation process is living the sacramental life in the new mm-hmm. covenant. So also when we went from Middle English to Modern English, the word faith went from a verb to a noun. We discussed this also. We discussed that uh, John 3.16 is a summation of belief, or if Paul would have never uh, called us to obedience to the faith, uh, he never would have said, let the priest who rule well be worthy of double honor in 1 Timothy 5.17. And the grace given freely in laws written in our hearts are raised to the Beatitudes through faith. We have this, you know, this new world where a new conscience is developed. And we have this, uh, the, the moral law. And yet Christians, we're supposed to take this even higher. We're supposed to take it to the Beatitudes. So this is a foundational way of living in holiness. Jesus raised obedience to faith, even above prophecy, casting, uh, when he, uh, and casting out demons and miracles when he said not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven except those who do well of my father. So raising obedience to faith even above these things shows our process of the narrow road of transforming grace. So uh, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 2 goes on, and it says, And that not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God, not of works. Mm-hmm. Well, we discussed the works of the Mosaic Law. This is the only works Paul puts down. Paul does not put down the Ten Commandments, but actually says love fulfills the law and tells us we must you know, keep, uh, keep the spiritual nature of the commandments, which is that charity. He doesn't put down the ritual, uh, the ritual and religion of the new covenant. This is crazy thinking, but it's where people end up when they misunderstand this uh, idea works. Right. He says, for, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you shall show the death of the Lord until he comes again. Who is showing it to? The Father. This right. is the sacramental life in the grace given freely of being able to live these works. And – Luke, this uh, this equivocation because basically what you're saying is, when you say they're using they're speaking a, a different language, but they're speaking a different language using the same words. What they're doing is they're just reattaching new meanings to, to those words. Uh, and this started with Luther, but then it is has it has exploded ever since. And what it's basically created is what the Lord decried in uh, in two different parts of the Gospels. Uh, one, he, it, he decried 
the house built on sand versus the house built on the rock. So when you think of the image of sand, you think of a shifting and moving and, and, and unsteady foundation. And then the other uh, image is the house divided against itself. And Luke, if that's not a, a, a description of modern Protestantism, I don't know what would be because, I mean, right now the, the situation of modern Protestantism today, they they can't agree on the color of paint. When, when you separate from the authority, when you separate from the sacramental life, you end up, you know, over time, due to entropy, where things go from organization to disorganization, uh, you end up basically obliterating, you know, what God established. And we're at the point now where there are many in, in you have gone to into this fundamentalist category where it's almost becoming new age spiritualism, mm-hmm. where it's, it's uh, your religion is based on emotions and this feeling of the Holy spirit. Well, mm-hmm. emotionalism can be quite confusing, you know, as, as, as we look at this, even the idea of speaking in tongues, I mean, the original purpose of speaking in tongues given to the Catholic church from the beginning was that uh, so that the apostles could go out and speak the different languages uh, of the known world and evangelize. Right. So now it, it's gotten to the point where it's, it's, it's self-confirmation through emotional response. Right, right. So in other words, what it, what it, what it has done is it's taken uh, these sub- sublime, uh, invisible mystery of, of baptism which is a visible sign uh, signifying and, and holding a, an invisible grace, it's taken that and it's completely thrown that away or blown that up into this, into this visible, uh, hyper-emotional uh, thing where you're, you're not really saved or you're not really authentically Christian unless you're speaking in tongues and rolling around in the aisles and all this other crazy visible outward stuff that, that uh, so it's, it's basically made the practice of religion in, into uh, theatrics. So why, why don't you start there? Why don't you at- really attack what, John 3 is really about and what John 3 was historically meant to say and then what they turned it into in the in the 20th century. Well, John 3:16 is is basically uh John living the new covenant and saying we must believe in the new covenant. So, again, this idea of belief separate from the sacramental life is not Christianity. Because we could see the belief all the way through the scriptures. We could see the religion and ritual of the new covenant all the way through the scriptures. So, you can't take all of this religion and all this ritual and then pull a verse out of your hat 
and say that, you know, I'm going to ignore the entire body of faith because John says all I have to do is believe. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's, you have to understand that there's a huge contradiction there. When Paul says, obey uh, who have the rule over you because they watch over your souls, you know, why doesn't, you know, more people say, well, who are these prelates? Right. Well, James of the Council of Jerusalem quoted Amos saying we are basically uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the reestablished kingdom of David, prophecy of Amos fulfilled. Paul said that, you know, you have come to Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. Mount Zion is the image of what God establishes in the end days where we go to learn the wisdom of God. He says we have come to this. He says uh, the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. He explains that uh, uh, even uh, the church will teach the angels the manifold wisdom of God. So when he says obey your prelates who have the rule over you, Paul would think it would be complete heresy to say that we should obey SDA. We should obey the Anglican Church. We Mm -hmm. should obey modern Protestantism. The only prelates Paul could possibly be talking about are those that are in the reestablished kingdom of David. Mm-hmm. And and by and by uh, basically assassinating this um, this covenant understanding of grace by basically assassinating that, what they did was they created uh, this this notion of penal substitution. Basically, where Christ takes on um, uh, a role of running interference between us and the Father, so that it's not that our sin is erased, is that the Father can't see our sin because Jesus is standing in the way. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using a, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence of their of their argument. I had a, a friend the other day who's a Baptist, and I asked him a very simple question. I said, do you believe that that Jesus' blood, that the blood of Jesus covers our sins or removes our sins? And there is a fundamental difference in the way that we see that. We we believe that sanctifying grace removes the sin. So that that is the biggest difference, isn't it, Luke, where they see as Christ declares an unjust sinner justified, whereas we believe that Christ makes an unjust sinner justified. And they get these things through, uh, again, you know, taking these, you know, single scriptures and having an interpretation that goes against Catholicism in this construct that becomes their tradition a uh, clear example is uh, when Christ is on the cross, he says, it is finished. And automatically people think, oh, this is eternal security. This is once save, all save. This is Christ paying the debt. Where does Christ explain himself when he said it is finished? He doesn't. So we have a conjecture in, the, in, in this process. And it's, you know, these things are so important that you, you cannot have these types of conjectures. So the same Jesus who said it is finished, 
before this said, I, you know, I will build my church. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So do I know for sure what he meant when he said it is finished? No, but I could more likely through logical deduction say that he was establishing what he needed to do while he was in physical form uh, in the process uh, of, of creating his church. So another example is when Paul talks about uh, Christ paying the debt. This idea of paying the debt, again, they use for uh, uh, the uh, idea of once saved, always saved. But if you take into consideration, again, Paul uh, used to be a Pharisee. Who was under the debt? Well, we go back to the, uh, the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And the Israelites uh, received the Ten Commandments, and then the Israelites worshipped a golden calf, and then God gave them, you know, the the pedagogy, the uh, strict schoolmaster for a child. He gave them the second legislation of Mosaic law, which is all of the rituals where in this pedagogy, which is a strict schoolmaster for a child they were told to even sacrifice what they once worshipped. So this whole body of Leviticus is a correction. And so they entered this, uh, this agreement with God, this oath. And in this oath, there was a blood oath. Because when... The Israelites went against God. God established an oath where to go against this oath, then they would be separate from God. Mm-hmm. So Christ himself, God, because the, the, the greater the, the, the one you sin against, uh, the more reparation that is needed. So God himself, in the form of man, came down 1,300 years later in the incarnation, and God went to the cross to pay the debt for the oath that they broke. Now, this is separate (laughs) from our baptism, but this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about Christ paying the debt. So so let's deal with that, Luke, because I I want you to kind of – This is the game changer here. So in Luke 20, Jesus poses a question to the Pharisees who were trying to trick him, asking him by what authority he did these things. And Jesus asked them a question. Was John's baptism of heavenly or human origin? And they didn't know what to answer. So walk us through the process and explain what is the correct answer to that question? And then how that changed once Jesus went to the cross? Well, John's baptism was for the Jews only because it was a baptism of redemption. It was a baptism of a preparation for Christ's baptism. There's a huge difference between a baptism of, you know, uh, of, of, uh, toward God than a baptism of grace 
which uh, is the uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit right. and water. So when the you know the Protestants say when we are born again, of course being born again for those of the age of reason takes the grace of the Holy Spirit to experience the love of Christ at its foundation. Yet this is just the beginning of the true nature of being born again. And you must see born again through the life of the first century church in order to truly understand it. And you also can't separate reason from scripture in your interpretation. Uh, Protestants can't see baptism when Paul refers to how we are saved by blood and spirit because they choose not to see it unless the word baptism is used. Right. So, so Paul is addressing members of the church who have been baptized and who have already been instructed in the gift of baptism as purging the past sins, which includes redemption from original sin, therefore restoring justification before God, where John is giving a baptism of repentance. God is establishing a baptism of entrance into the promise of Abraham fulfilled. Now, what is the promise of Abraham fulfilled? Well, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promise is for you and and for your children. And a lot of people don't pick up on on this idea uh, of promise. Well, the first act, uh, part of the promise is that what does baptism do? Well, if you look at Second Peter 1, Peter tells you part of this baptism, and you can't separate these things from being born again. They are all included in the process of being born again. Peter says, and you employing all care, minister in your faith virtue, and in virtue of knowledge, and in knowledge abstinence, and in absence of patience, and in patience godliness, in godliness love of brotherhood, and in love of brotherhood charity, for if these things be with you and abound, they'll make you to be neither empty nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He that hath not these things with him is blind and groping, having forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So being mm-hmm. purged from past sins is not simply asking Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and born again as Protestants understand it, it's a process at a specific point in time through the Holy Spirit. Uh, right. So, so what would you say to the Protestants that argue that, well, the difference here is that John's baptism was of water, and the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like what happened at Pentecost. So basically they're they're basically saying that John's baptism was symbolic only because the water baptism is symbolic only, but when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, that's that's when you're saved. How would you answer that argument? Well, to start, I just look at the Great Commission. Jesus told the apostles to uh, go and uh, teach to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit present at baptism? If you say no, then don't you call God a liar? Mm-hmm. So baptism... yes, I want to bring. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just want to bring Terry back on real quick, just for a, for a minute, and ask him this question. Uh, Terry, you there? 
Yeah, yeah, Yes. So, so I want to ask you a question. Between these two models, between, um, you know, one where 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 uh, grace is is a is a symbol, grace is a disposition um, of God, versus this idea that grace is something that actually sanctifies, cleanses, and changes people. Terry, you're you're the host of our Saturday night program, taking it to the streets. You've seen with your own eyes, lives changed. Uh, what what is your comment on on which of these two realities is true? Does does grace just uh, does, does it just cover up our sins, or does it actually change the person and turn him into a new person? Yeah, it, it actually it, so. Grace is a two-way, you know, you've got to accept the grace. But once you accept it and submit your will to God, it changes you. Um, I'm no longer the play, person I was before God uh, granted me the, the grace of salvation, the grace of the sacraments, and there's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Amen, brother. And uh, I just want to tell you again, uh, for anybody that's uh, listening, catch Terry um uh, uh, tomorrow night at 7 p.m., one of our best shows of the week that we do every Saturday night, taking us to the street. I just, I just love that show, and uh, I'll hook up with you in just a few minutes, Terry. All right, brother. Yeah, Luke, I just wanted to bring him on because he's a classic example. This is a man whose whose who's life was a wreck. Life was that was was a wreck. He was incarcerated. Um, you know, by 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 human measure, his life was hopeless, and by the miracle of grace, or 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 what we would say is the process of grace in action, this man's life radically changed, and by their their definition of of um, you know. Basically, I, I I don't know what you what you want to call it implied grace or or um, um, imputed grace versus infused grace. They nullify that, right? They 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 Jesus declares the person changed rather than the person actually literally being changed, right? Doesn't their theology kind of just undo that? Well, I see. In Protestants who are more humble, the uh, uh, a grace through the love of Christ. But then I see because you know being on those uh, debate sites all the time, uh, it, it gets to the point where uh, it, it's it's kind of us against them mentality in some of these people, and there's a false sense of righteousness through the, their attacks on the Catholic Church. So the same people who say that, uh, you know, they're in God's grace uh, come across with a lack of fear of God, which, you know, is needed for us to have humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the Proverbs. It's the fear of God's beginning to wisdom and knowledge of the holy is prudence. Well, we, we focus on this uh, uh, holiness because mm-hmm. it, we have the sacramental life in order to do so. When we look at the Eucharist, 
you know, we're in the presence of the most holy, you know, most holy, you know, uh, element uh, in, in the universe. And so we're called to this holiness. And the, the sacramental life is the narrow road of transforming grace. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is, is really fascinating. Paul says, we all who with unveiled faces uh, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into an image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Well, if, if we take the image of the, uh, the church as a whole and look at you know, the epistles as a whole, we look at what Paul says, and we all who with unveiled faces. Well, in Galatians 3, Paul, Paul says, O oh, you foolish Galatians, who before your very eyes, Christ is portrayed as crucified before you. So this is our unveiling compared to the types in the Old Testament of the bread of the presence. We have right. that right before us. And in this spiritual atmosphere, in this covenant life, in this union with Christ, uh, we contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So why is it that baptism can only be received once? Uh, uh it's really not necessary for a second time. It's, I think it could only be received once uh, the church is expressing a discipline to show that it is only needed once because it is a removal of original sin. We can only remove original sin once. After baptism on the narrow road of transforming grace, uh, we have confession. Baptism is being saved by the blood of the Lamb. We do not understand how baptism destroys the past sins, including original sin. There's something different in the, in, in the sacramental life, the way for the removal uh, uh, of future sins. Uh, they do not understand how baptism destroys past sins. And uh, being, uh, if we read uh, um, Paul in Romans, says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to the showing of his just, justice for the remission of former sins, past sins. Again, Peter says, we are purged of, uh, purged of past sins. Paul explains further the spiritual reality of this, and we will go deeper in the spiritual reality of this. Mm-hmm where he says that this redemption comes through the blood of Christ, but it uh, removes past sins. Right. So, so what are the past sins? Well, our past sins would be original sins and all the sins of the past. So there's complete removal, complete wiping away and becoming a new child of God through this. Right. So, so examine this, Luke. This is the thing that always kind of, threw me off about uh, what a lot of Protestants believe. So if if we start off with what we agree on, we start off agreeing that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and um, 
we need to repent of our sins. We need to truly be sorry for our sins. And we need to ask Jesus to forgive our sins. So we, we agree with all of that. But then where we diverge with some of them is, and this is the thing that blows me away, is some of them, and I'm not all of them, but some of them believe that when Christ forgives your sins, he forgives your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. Now, that doesn't make any sense, because if I'm a sinner and I recognize my guilt for my sin, and my sins are washed away by grace, by the blood of the Lamb, and I'm cleansed, then any future mortal sins that I commit would even be greater in malice because I'm throwing away the gift of salvation that I have been given. So logic would dictate, would dictate that there has to be some sort of an, of an act to make that right. Uh, not simply, okay, the sins that I committed today don't matter because of the uh, pledge of Christ that I made 10 years ago. That they really go off the rails there, right? Yeah, and the thing is, uh, there's nowhere in in the apostolic church in the writings of the church fathers where you see anything close to that. There's uh, confession for the sins after baptism. And when the uh, apostles used the word the way, the way was not the name of a church. The way was actually the faith and practice of living the sacramental life. And you can see this in the early writings of the apostles where they talk about confession and they say, they say this is the way of life. Uh, in the Didache, it describes the way uh, in the contents of confession and the mass. So mm-hmm. Peter basically, you know, uh, about people who are in the church, and he's talking about people who are uh, falling away from the church, and refers to them as the dogs who uh, have returned to their vomit. You know, right. after they've received the baptism, after they've, you know, received the graces of God, and they turn away. And he says that this, they're, they're worse off than they were when they started. Right. So but to, to get to, back into this understanding of baptism, and often, you know, like, like we just saw, where Paul talks about past sins in relationship to the, the blood of Christ, you don't see the word baptism. And since Protestants don't see the word baptism, uh, they, they they just kind of uh, look at this as uh, as more of just a, a feeling type thing, but the removal of past sins that both Peter and Paul talk about is not a, a you know a, a feeling type deal. It's actually physical removal of the past sins, and as we look at this spiritual nature where Paul talks about blood involved, uh, the uh, Old Testament is there to show the soul, you know, the spiritual reality of the New Testament uh, in a lot of uh, the book of Leviticus. And so the spiritual nature of how the blood saves 
was in the heart of the church from its earliest days. It was the mysteries of type and heavenly realities. And uh, I'm, I'm going to give one of, the, uh, one of the examples. One of the clearest visions of this is the mystery of the red heifer, which we read from in uh, Numbers 19. It says, everyone that touches the corpse of a man is not sprinkled with the mixture, shall profane the tabernacle of the Lord, shall perish out of Israel. And uh, this is a type fulfilled in the church, Israel. Uh, the church baptizes, as the prophecy of Amos explains, and James quotes at the Council of Jerusalem when he says, on that day I'll rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has uh, fallen down. So we look at these things in relation to the fulfillment. And uh, Numbers goes on, because he was not sprinkled with the water of expiation, he shall be unclean, as uncleanness shall remain uh, upon him. It goes on, and they shall take the ashes of the burning and of the sin offering, shall pour living waters upon them into a vessel. And a man that is clean shall dip hyssop in them, shall sprinkle there, therewith all the tent and all the furniture, and the men that are defiled by touching any such thing. In this manner, he that is clean shall purify the unclean. And it goes on and says that if, if uh, uh, nobody is expiated by this, by this process, then uh, if any man be not expiated after this rite, his soul shall perish out of the midst of the church. Mm-hmm. So we see this image of the blood of Christ here. And uh, a lot of people do, don't, don't pick up on this. But if you look at the, what's going on with the red heifer, the red heifer is a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. It's a, uh, it's a very rare uh, animal. Jesus is a unique son. The sacrifice is actually done outside the camps, and it was done on Mount Olives. Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. He was sacrificed on Mount Olives. Uh, the sacrifice is actually for even the Gentiles that, uh, that were so. So it purified both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the uh, uh, baptism purifies both Jews and Gentiles. The sacrifice without, was without blemish. Uh, Christ is the, the perfect lamb without blemish. Uh, the uh, red heifer was never yoked. Christ uh, said that he voluntarily gives up his life. It's uh, the symbol of scarlet wool and wood is blood on wood. Christ mm-hmm. is reigned from the wood. The hyssop is, is, is for purification. The baptism uh, purifies us from sin. The combination of the ashes and the sacrifice with water for purification combine the blood of Jesus with our baptism and purification. So these deep spiritual mystagogies are what we're taught in the early church. And since they are so sacred, you know, the, the church understood that uh, it needed to keep things sacred and uh, Jesus was the one who actually told them to do so when he said, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before the swine or they will tear you. Well, the earliest reference we have to this saying outside of the Bible is in the Didache, uh, written about 70 AD, the teaching of the apostles. And it explains that nobody should be uh, uh, received the Eucharist until they are baptized into the church because Christ said, give not what is holy to the dogs. Mm-hmm. There's just so much more mystagogy. There's so much more spirituality that is has been removed from the construct of Christianity Protestants understand. Right. 
And and again, this is because what they're trying to do is they're trying to impose a 21st century understanding on something that um, would be completely alien to the uh, to the Jewish community of the first century. The uh, the the disciples taught the Catholic faith. It's it, it, it's so obvious just by looking at the church fathers. And what happened with faith alone, scripture alone, is they didn't move just, you know, slightly, you know, to, to the right or left. The, the, the faith of the early church in those writings of the church fathers is not only different, it is, it is worlds apart from, you know, modern Protestantism. When you completely remove yourself from the sacramental nature of what the early church was living, then how do you even come to the conclusion that you're living in the new covenant? So again, this goes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago. They created uh, an entirely new reality using the same words. It bears no resemblance to, to the faith that the, that the early church fathers taught. No, it's not even close. And to uh, to further, uh, you know, uh, look at this this idea of this mystagogy and this way the uh, the early church saw saw the sacredness of things. Uh, Basil writes concerning the teachings of the church, whether publicly proclaimed, karyagma, or reserved to members of the household of the faith, dogmata. We have received some from the written sources while others have been given to us secretly through apostolic tradition. Both sources have equal force in true religion. No one would deny either source, no one at any rate who is even slightly, slightly familiar with the ordinances of the church. If we attacked unwritten customs, claiming them to be of little importance, we would mutilate the gospel, no matter what our intentions, or rather we would reduce the gospel teaching to bare words. This is mm-hmm. prophecy fulfilled in modern Protestantism. Now, when did uh, approximately what time frame did St. Basil write this? Oh, off the top of my head, I don't know, but I think he's uh, probably fourth century, uh, maybe, maybe fifth. So, uh, a, a thousand years before Luther. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and Paul basically, you know, when he talks about the mystagogy in Corinthians, Paul says, But the natural man perceives not these things out of the Spirit of God, for it is foolishness to him, and he cannot understand because it's spiritually examined. Well, this, the, the central man does not see the Eucharist, does not see obedience of faith. And we're called to obedience of the faith even in the words of the I mean, this is, uh, this is a benevolent father teaching a child where the child really doesn't understand or comprehend, but he knows what the loving father is doing is for his benefit. Right. And that is basically, I mean, that's, you just defined faith because um, if we understand it, it's not faith. So uh, in order, in order to have faith, it has there has to be at least a large element of it that's removed from our understanding. It's beyond our our, our ability uh, 
um, to comprehend and to understand and to, and to kind of see the way that we're going because then obedience, um, that, that, that humbled obedience and humility is, is not possible if, if we know the way. If, if, if you're reading scripture, then basically, you know, your interpretation of scripture is simply a choice and there's no obedience to look at the scripture and die to false preconceptions. You know, for those who are, are not yet even Christians, you have to have the humility to die to false preconceptions. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic church, just in the way it's designed is designed to promote this, uh, this, this humility. Now, I want to get back to this, uh, this saying of Christ where he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs mm-hmm. because there, there's so and this also will lead in further into baptism. Uh, uh, this is a, an understanding of what he was referring to. Uh, uh, I don't remember who this came from, but it's very enlightening. It says that which is holy, the word points to the flesh, which has been offered for sacrifice, the holy thing of Leviticus 22, 6 and 7, Leviticus 22, 10, Leviticus 22, 16. I'll discuss this, of which no unclean person or stranger or uh, portorial or no unclean beast was to eat, uh, to give that uh, holy flesh to dogs would have seemed to the devout Israelite the greatest of all profanations. So when we look at what is an, uh, 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 the unholy state, unclean is fulfilled in unbaptized. Clean refers to baptism into God's church, which disciples and apostles refer to as, among other things, regeneration through the true bronze laver. So in Titus 3, Paul says we are saved by the laver, the laver which was in front of the holies, so the veil into the holies represents the flesh of Christ and the church, Christ's bride. And uh, as Paul says, uh, the flesh is washed, the flesh is sanctified. The right there again is baptism without saying baptism. Uh, so uh, we uh, went over in the, in the Didache what uh, the apostles understood needed to be done before receiving the Eucharist is that it is baptism. So in Paul's epistles, uh, our letters only addressing what was pressing on his mind at the time to those who were already born again, already redeemed, already justified, being purged of past sins by receiving the grace given freely of baptism. He is addressing people who he already taught the faith to, who are living in obedience to faith. And from the beginning of Christianity, the church, taught that the gifts of baptism were redemption, regeneration, justification, entrance to the promise Abraham fulfilled as a chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, uh, that had put on the, uh, the, the, the wedding garments. This is another uh, part of the mystagogy, so that they could participate with the hosts of heaven in the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. This baptism created a purification because nothing can, uh, unclean can enter heaven. And in the sacramental nature, the church unites with the heaven above. 
And since we are clean, we participate in the graces of the Holy Mass as a true Passover for the world. Wow. It really is. It really is amazing. I, I often cheer up when I think <laughs> yeah. about it, the, the spiritual reality of that. And when yeah. Paul says we are saved by, you know, uh, he says we're saved. Uh, well, I'm trying to, my mind's a little fluttering right now. Mm-hmm. That uh, He talks about uh, uh, basically living by faith and not by sight. Right. And then he, uh, Paul explains this heavenly reality in Hebrews 20, uh, 12, 22 that we come to when he says, but you are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the company of many thousands of angels, to the church of the firstborn who are written in the heavens, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the just made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the New Testament, and sprinkling, sprinkling of blood, which speaketh better than that of Abel, See that you refuse him not that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spoke upon earth, much more shall we not that turn away from him that speaketh to us from heaven. So this is something that, you know, is not in the future. This is what we have come to through our baptism, through our redemption, through the love of Christ by entering his flesh as his bride. So, then answer this answer this last um, uh, objection that I hear a lot. Um, they seem to have difficulty as to where baptism falls in the in the in the role of faith. And in fact, some of them actually believe that that baptism is merely a a formality after you've accepted Christ, after you've been regenerated. And then you're baptized kind of just as a as a way to seal the deal or or a way to a public pro, uh, proclamation of what has already occurred. And by that viewpoint, they totally throw out the idea of infant baptism. And yet Peter says the promise is for you and your children. So why do Catholics believe in infant baptism, whereas Protestants uh, for for large part don't? Well, we could uh, begin to see that by looking at Titus 3.5 a little bit deeper. Uh, in Titus 3.5, uh, where uh, Paul starts out by saying that uh, we are not saved by uh, our works of justice. We understand this as, as once saved, all saved. But, but there is a chronology here, a process, and this is a sacramental life. Where Paul says, not by works of justice we have done, but by according to mercy, he saved us by the law of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost. So we do not come into the flesh of Christ through our own justices, but through the grace given freely of baptism. And this is spiritually entering the flesh of Christ. So it's obvious that this is washing that regenerates uh, this washing and regeneration is baptism, even though you don't see the word baptism here. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. And um, we add that again to what uh, Peter talked about purging the past sins. And then uh, if we read uh, again in Hebrews 19, Paul says, 
having their, therefore, brethren, a confidence and in entering the holies by the blood of Christ, a new and living way which he has dedicated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh and the high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. So again, we have baptism, but where are we here? In Titus 3.5, we are at the laver of regeneration. The priests had to wash in the bronze laver before they entered the veil. Perhaps they died. Unless you're born of water and spirit, you should not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we enter the veil, the flesh of Christ, through our baptism, washed with clean water. And right. if we go yeah. on, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, our, uh, our, in Romans, uh, uh, Paul says, not as though the word of God has miscarried, for all are not Israelites that, Israelites that are of Israel. Neither are all they that are the seed of Abraham children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. That is to say, not they that are the children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that are children of the promise are counted as the spur of the seed. Mm-hmm. Where do we hear that word promise? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Is for you and for your children, and Paul applies uh, also uh, lets us in on this in Galatians. I think it's like J- Galatians 25. He says, "For you are no longer a Jew or Gentile, freeman or slave. You all been baptized into the promise of Abraham. Again, baptism, promise. But here we show an entire transition of humanity into the family of God." Right through the promise, but they make the if that, when they make the objection to old age. But when they make the objection that the Bible says, "Believe and be baptized for the remission of your sins," they make the argument that a child is not capable of believing, and the child is also not capable of sinning. So doesn't this imply that baptism is only for adults? I'm, I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm saying that's the argument that they make. Well, again, if we use the Ignatius principle and place ourselves into that mind of the first century church, uh, the Jews circumcised their child by the seventh day. Why? Because it was the sign of the promise that was to be fulfilled. So if the Jews for 1,300 years were circumcising their children as a sign of the promise, then they heard Peter say, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promise is for you and for your children. Mm-hmm. They're coming into the fulfillment of the promise. The, the adults there understand that the baptism is for the remission of sins, the adults there understand that the promise is for them and their children. Therefore, it is the faith of the parent who brings the child into the family of God, the promise fulfilled. Right. Luke, we're out of time for, uh, for the night uh, until uh, ne- next uh, Friday. So um, as we always do, why don't you close us with a prayer tonight? Let's say it's a Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed the fruit of thy own Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Father and Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen and amen. And we'll be back next Friday to continue this. Luke, another great show. Fantastic stuff. God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless you too.